Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for Gardenmore Presbyterian Church. Keep up to date on our website, gardenmorechurch.org, or search for us on Facebook. There are many ways that we could describe church. If someone was to ask us the question, what is church? We could start with geography. We could say, well, it's on the Victoria Road in Larne, in County Antrim. The description could be of the building its age, its style, uh, what makes it unique. You could even go down the line of describing some of the people that go and perhaps the jobs that they do. Maybe you would answer someone with the type of people that go or if you're aware of it, maybe the history of the congregation. How long has it existed? Some key family names, maybe the ministers and elders that have served over the years. If someone was to ask us what is church There are plenty of ways that we could begin to answer that question. But none of those ways is how Peter describes the church in our passage today. Because here we see in verses 4 to 10 of chapter 2, Peter gives his description of the church and it isn't really in terms that I imagine would spring immediately to our minds. Yet we read these verses and there's something incredibly humbling and awe-inspiring about what Peter writes. Let me just begin by by reading the phrases that are used by Peter to describe God's people in these verses. Living stones built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, the people of God. If you are a believer this morning as you watch this, what an honour it is to bear these titles as part of God's church. What an encouragement it is for us. Yet again in this countercultural letter from Peter, having seen him tell the exiled Christians of the countercultural hope that they have and how they should live countercultural lives, we get two for the price of one this week in the passage. Because speaking of the church, the apostle shows us that we are countercultural people with a countercultural purpose. We are countercultural people with a countercultural purpose. And I think we can see more and more that we are countercultural people. It's obvious that as a body of people, as the church, we are rapidly becoming more and more different to the society and the people who surround us. We think differently, we, we live differently, we want different things. But in particular, these verses show us two ways in which we stand out as this countercultural people. And the first is that we are a people built by God. Now this may be a portion of scripture that describes what the church is, but what Peter writes here isn't centred on man, but it is wonderfully God-centred. And there's a fairly logical reason for that. Because the church, God's people, they are not a byproduct or a creation of man, but it is built by God. We are not the focus of this building. Did you notice that in verse five? You also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. Being built. It's passive on our part, not active. We don't look at a newly built house and herald the the bricks and the timber and the wonderful job that they did. They are merely the resources used by the builder. And so it is in the case of this spiritual house. We are the resources used by the builder. 
God is building a spiritual house. He is building a people for himself. And this is something that we've seen throughout Scripture. And in Exodus 19 verses 5 to 6, we, we see it there. We see very similar language to what Peter uses. God is building Israel to be his treasured possession. Isaiah 43, 21, God speaks of the people he formed for himself. And then again in Hosea 2, 23, God will say to those not, or those called not my people, you are my people. God has been building himself a people throughout the span of scripture. And with Israel, God wanted people who believed and trusted in him. He wanted them to stand out amidst all the other nations and be unique in their loyalty to him. They were to be an example and a light to those other nations, showing the greatness of the Lord. And as one commentator says, this is now not happening through ethnic Israel, but instead through the community of believers in Jesus. Believers, you and I, like living stones, as it says in the opening verses, are part of this wonderful building which is being crafted by God. Think of how these words must have really been of help to the original recipients of this letter. Because remember, always keep in mind as we're reading this, the context into which Peter is writing. To Christians who are exiled and scattered all over the place into different countries and cultures and societies who most likely weren't that accepting of this strange new religion that had come onto the scene. That may have meant opposition and some sort of persecution, whether that was severe or less so. Yet here the apostle tells them that God is building them into a spiritual house. And this would have been remarkable for them. Because if God is the builder of the structure, and we'll see later that Jesus is the cornerstone, then there was no one and no thing who would be able to destroy it. Even in the face of persecution and opposition and a strange culture and strange identities from all those around them, nothing and no thing could destroy it. And we see that now, don't we? We, we see the evidence of that around the world. Even in the most severe persecution, in the, in the face of the worst uh, things happening to Christians, God's church stands firm and is not destroyed. In fact, very often, more than that, we see that even still God builds and builds and builds his church. That is encouraging for them and it is encouraging for us. We don't have persecution in that way. We give thanks to God that we can meet with great freedom and worship God. But there are other ways in which people will seek to attack and weaken God's church. Yet with this in mind, we can have an immeasurable confidence that God's church will not fall and will not be weakened because of the perfection of the builder and the cornerstone on which it is built. This spiritual house, as it said in 1 Peter, was not built by man. And so what great confidence that can give us that it cannot be weakened and it cannot be destroyed by man. It's also very important to realise what tense Peter is writing in here. He writes that these believers are being built. 
into a spiritual house. It isn't written in the past that it has already been done and building has stopped. But it is present. It is happening and continuing to happen. Very often we can be discouraged because numerically congregations generally are, are getting less and less. And our discouragement is compounded by the fact that we always look back at what things used to be. Church buildings were full. You couldn't get a seat. Towns and villages needed to have so many churches for the amount of people that were coming. And yet now that isn't the case. People seem to be less interested. Which means we come to the conclusion often that the church is failing and perhaps more than that, it's fading away. Yet in verse 5, it says, are being built into a spiritual house. Folks, be encouraged that God has not downed tools. He is building his spiritual house. We see it when we look at the bigger picture around the world. In so many countries, the church is growing and it is growing at a massive rate. But we also see it at our own local level as well. It just may not be in the droves and in the numbers that we so cry out for, but God continues to work and build his church and he will continue to, no matter what we see when we look around and no matter what opposition may come. We are a people built by God and we are a people with Jesus as our cornerstone it tells us in these verses. Peter highlights that by writing in verse 4 that Jesus is the living stone rejected by humans and then in verse 7 quoting words from Psalm 118 the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verses that Jesus himself quoted after teaching the parable of the tenants. Jesus is chosen as the cornerstone of God's building. As I said to the children earlier, the cornerstone it is the first stone laid down and it needed to be perfect because the rest of the building depended on it. I'm sure that, that most of you at some point will have played the, the very popular game Jenga, where you take out little blocks and you put them on top of the tower and the aim is to try not to make the tower fall over. And if you're a bit of a troublemaker when you play uh, this game, very early on, in the process you could take out one of the very bottom bricks because straight away that would compromise the structure and made it much more likely to fall for your opponent. If the cornerstone was wrong or compromised then the building would be wrong and compromised and eventually it would collapse and fall. But Jesus even though he was rejected by man was chosen to be the perfect cornerstone for this spiritual house. And that means that the stability of this building depends on Jesus. And that every other living stone is built and rests on him. And it's striking. There's two responses that we see in this passage to this cornerstone. And then there's two contrasting consequences for those responses. In verses 6 and 7, there are those who trust in him. Quoting from Isaiah 28 16, we see that the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Folks, people may try to shame the church and shame Christians here on earth by mocking and scorning and getting angry about what it is that we believe. Yet here is an assurance 
that followers of Christ will be justified in their faith. Why? Because it will be proved to be true. We will have the hope. We will have the inheritance. We will have the confidence in judgment because of our Saviour Jesus. And no matter what shame people may try to put on us today or tomorrow or in the future, we will not be put to shame. And so we can agree with Peter's assertion that for those of us who believe this stone, Jesus, is so precious, so, so precious to us. But look at the contrast in verses 7 and 8 for the second response, which is those who do not believe. And this response experiences this cornerstone of Jesus in a very different way to those who do trust. Because instead of providing the security and taking away the shame that we see in earlier verses, for those who do not believe, Jesus becomes a stumbling block. Peter references Isaiah 8.14 to show that everyone who refuses to trust in Jesus, who continues to reject him and give him no place in their life, will be caused to stumble and fall over him. Why? Because they disobey the message. Peter meaning the gospel when he says message. To disobey the message, to disobey the gospel is to reject Jesus. To not see him as the way, the truth and the life. To not acknowledge his work on the cross and the victory of his resurrection and that what that means for this world. To not accept him as your saviour. And to not make him the Lord of your life. And the reality is that you know and I know that for some people tuning into this service today, that has just described you. And so this is a warning of your future if you continue to disobey the message. Jesus, the cornerstone, will cause you to stumble and will cause you to fall. In fact, Jesus himself is even more explicit and clear in Matthew 21, verse 44, when he says that anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. It will lead to you stumbling, falling and ultimately to destruction. Friends, you need to trust in Jesus before that day comes and I wouldn't delay. Some might see yourselves as being in a neutral place. You, you, you believe what you hear on a Sunday. You believe what you hear from God's word, but it doesn't affect your life in any way. I've said this before, but there is no neutral space. C.S. Lewis wrote, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. If the latter is what you think in that quote, then the future promises no vindication for you and sadly you will be put to shame. But if you do believe that Jesus is the son of God, yet it has had no impact on your life or in your heart, then what on earth are you waiting for? What is it you are waiting for? Trust in Jesus. Believe in him now and not later. And then let me finish by, by speaking a little bit about what is the purpose of this spiritual house that God is building. We live and play our part because we do this as well 
in a world that always asks the question or is thinking, what is it I'm going to get out of this? How is this going to affect me positively or negatively? That's usually how our world thinks, very concerned about ourselves and how things impact us. But the purpose of the church that Peter describes in these verses is not for us, but it's for God. Remember God's words in Isaiah 43, 21, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. The church is not a vehicle for our success and our praise, but it is and should be for God. And verses 5 and 9, Peter makes that very clear. This chosen people, this holy and royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, all these phrases that have real significance in the Old Testament are to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This holy priesthood would have definitely called to mind the imagery of the priests in the Old Testament. It was their role to, to come and to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people and to do that as worship. But now Peter is saying there's no need for this type of priest because through Jesus, the only mediator that we need through Jesus, all barriers to God have been removed. And now all believers take on that role of priest and offer not physical but spiritual sacrifices to God. And verse 9 expands and tells us what those spiritual sacrifices might be. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The purpose of the church and our purpose as believers is to declare the praises or it's sometimes translated proclaim the excellencies of God. And Peter details some of those excellencies that we should give praise for in the next couple of sentences. Bringing us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We were not his people, but he made us people of God. We did not have mercy, but we received it from him. And so Peter's argument is that having experienced these things and so much more, our response should be to declare the praises of God, to proclaim those excellencies. To God be the glory, great things he has done. That was what God wanted with Israel. That's why they were set aside in the Old Testament, because they were to be a light to the other nations. An example of people who had experienced the Lord God Almighty. A testimony to others that they didn't need to bow down to worthless statues and made up gods, because they worshipped and were loved by the Lord of Lords, by Yahweh the Lord God Almighty. And that was to be the case and the encouragement for the exiled Christians that Peter was writing to. Amidst the different cultures, they were to be unique. They were to be an example to others because they were to offer spiritual sacrifices to God by declaring his praise and proclaiming the excellencies of what he had done for them so that others might hear and come to know that he is the Lord. That is the same purpose for the church today and for us as individuals. We have experienced those same excellencies and so our response is to declare and proclaim them in every single part of our lives so that others may see them and know them and come to know 
the greatness of our God. You see, this isn't just a case of saying words, although that is a part of it. But as one commentator puts it, such praise comes not only in the form of words, but in song, testimony, financial gifts, prayer, proclamations of truth, and so on. Then in Hebrews 13 verses 15 to 16 it says, Through Jesus therefore let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Are we seeking to declare God's praises in every aspect of our lives? Are we living in such a way that proclaims his excellencies to those who encounter us each day so that they may see the awesomeness of our God? Because that is the purpose and to be honest that is most certainly the privilege that we have as part of the church today. So in this week ahead let's do that. Let's put this Declaring the praises of God, proclaiming his excellencies into action in the entirety of our lives. If someone asks you the question, what is church? I imagine you would do well to keep their attention if you answered with Peter's description that we've seen today in these verses. But it should certainly enhance our own view of what the church is. It should help us to see the importance which it has. This is a spiritual house. It is built by God with Jesus as the cornerstone and it exists to bring glory to God and to God alone. Amen.